Well, what is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 522. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going into the world of stunts with stunt performer Stephen Kepfer. As many of you know, recently I produced a short film here in New York with uh, director Bill Tech and writer star Moose Matson. And Steve was kind enough to take us by the hand and help us uh, shoot this big action scene with the moose. And we started talking about movies and TV and that sort of thing. And we decided, hey, let's do an episode about stunts on Wrong Reel because stunts in so many ways get overlooked and neglected by the industry at large, at least when it comes to recognition. So today is the stunt day. So Steve, welcome to Wrong Reel. Hey, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was that was really fun with you and Moose and Bill. That was, that was a fun day. Man. Well, also, was, like, you know... Yeah. Bill's directed a lot of documentaries. I have produced very little outside of the world of animation of the last 10 years. And Moose was largely um, untested as a, yeah, as a, as a performer. Yeah. And so there were a lot of X factors and variables. So it's nice to have somebody who's got experience from the world of stunts to basically help us understand what are the safety protocols, how to do it, and just what are the steps do you take to create a scene and build a little mini narrative out of a fight scene. So yeah, that was definitely one of the one of the most fun things, probably the most fun thing I've done in New York since the beginning of the COVID crisis because we don't get to do anything in the city anymore. And so shooting a film reminded me, yeah. hey, you know what, you can get together with your friends, you can go out into the streets, and you can still do creative, fun, productive enterprises. Yeah, totally. And it's, uh, yeah, it was great. I can't wait to see what... Uh what bill does with it you know yeah he's he's uh he's done he's delivering a rough cut this weekend and then we'll do a Uh-oh. fine cut with some special effects and that sort of thing so i'm very cool. excited to see what he's been working on but it was great like when i was talking to moose about possibly bringing in a professional to really show us how to do a fight scene you quite literally were the the first thing that came up on google i was like new york stunt department slash like stunt work and your sound oh, cool. school came up and i called you you answered the phone and we immediately started getting along and you you definitely helped handhold me through the process of what what does it take to actually shoot a movie during the time of COVID, which is it's hard enough to shoot a movie under normal circumstances. During COVID, much more complicated. Right. Yeah, yeah, a lot more, a lot more to worry about and hoops to jump through. But it well, worked out great. This is a podcast mostly for movie fans, but like me, a lot of them, some of them are interested in action movies, some of them are interested in MMA, but I imagine most people could use a little introductory guide to the world of Sambo and how you got into stunts. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you made the transition from teaching Sambo into working in film and television. Sure, man. Um, So I'm a lifelong martial artist. I started with uh, karate, you know, like karate daycare when I was a kid in the 70s. My mom put me in that. Uh, she was a professor at Queens college and they had like a program for, you know, staff and faculty kids like to, cause we were like, I had two working, you know, my father was a fireman and my mom was basically a teacher. Right. So I was a latchkey kid. So they had these daycare programs. So, uh, karate was it. So it was a couple years of Shotokan. I didn't stick with it really, you know, but it did plant a seed in me. And then, um, it wasn't until about high school that I picked up martial arts again and that was in the uh, early 80s, you know. And then um, it's been martial arts ever since. I picked up Taekwondo back then, did that for a bunch of years, and then uh, moved on to Sanchao, which is like a Chinese style. It's like uh, kickboxing, but also with throws. And that's where I started to really love wrestling and throws. You know, eventually I moved on. I was looking to find another gym, and I found my Sambo coach in, 
98, no, no, in 99. But my first official experience with a Sambo coach was a seminar with Oleg Taktarov, who I'm sure everybody here knows from UFC fame, but also now from Tons also of film, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, film and stunt fame. And uh, we've become friends since then. You know, he was my first real kind of Sambo experience. And then by, that was in 98, after I had competed in a Gene LaBelle World Grapplers Challenge in nice. Toronto, which also everybody should know Gene LaBelle is like the granddaddy of stunts and uh and he i kind of want to i aspire to be like him he's like also, a, isn't he yeah. one of the godfathers in a lot of ways of just this oh, idea yeah. of cross training between disciplines yeah yeah he was doing mixed match fights early on you know fighter versus uh, boxer versus wrestler kind of stuff and um he's a founding member member of stunts unlimited and um, so it's it's pretty cool you know he's a he's a wrestler slash stunt guy slash you know it's like i kind of aspire to be that guy in 50 years i hope people are talking about me like they talk about him we're starting uh, that conversation right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it was his tournament and and uh oleg was teaching a seminar there so i went up to compete took a seminar with them and um met gene for the first time i've met him a, a time or two since but that's how I got started in Sambo. So by the next year, I actually, there was a coach in the city, a uh, Russian expat that was teaching. And that was in 99. And um, so from 99 until now, it's been straight up Sambo. How uh, big is Sambo in Russia compared to, like, a, a, what's its equivalent here in the United States in terms of popularity, do you think? I mean, in the grappling world, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a different world over there. I've been there a bunch of times to train, um, like, five times i guess and then uh, my last time was 2013 but over there it's pretty popular and, and ubiquitous you know i would say like like say for example just what everybody kind of knows like brazilian jiu-jitsu is is not very popular there it's getting more popular but it's not very popular but sambo and judo are probably the two main ones and yeah. then um, i mean all the russian fighters who do well i mean i watch ufc and obviously right now Khabib Nurmagomedov is one of the, one of the most dominant oh, yeah. champions around and he's yeah. just one of those guys he grew up in a village in Dagestan like, wrestling yeah. bears and you know doing sambo and for me that's like my when I think of sambo I think of Nurmagomedov and who's obviously fighting next weekend against sure. um, yeah, Justin yeah. Gaethje. I mean and he's he's a good example because he's you know like unlike jiu-jitsu or maybe some of the maybe not Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but some of the other historical approaches like within styles is to very stay very stylistic, right? And that kind of changed along with MMA coming in where people were branching out and training other things and cross-training. But that was always sort of like, you know, Sambo was built on that foundation of cross-training and take what works from other styles. So Habib is a wrestler, a Sambo guy, combat Sambo guy. You know, he'll, he'll, he's been doing whatever, whatever works, you know? And a lot of the people over there, like if you go train at um, Sambo 70, for example, in Moscow, which is one of the biggest clubs. Club is not even really a proper word. It's like Olympic training center size, you know, and it's actually a school. So, I mean, a school from like grammar school, junior high school, high school, kids go to school there. They're running around with their little jumpers on. And then after they're done with their classes, they're going to train Sambo and Judo, you know, And, and now combat Sambo and MMA they have in there, too. So um, it's a whole different approach to training. Like over there, the vast majority of people are professionals with a smaller percentage of recreationals. And in America, most people are recreational with a very small percentage of professionals. Right. So it's 
it's kind of flipped, you know. And and because they most of them are professionals when you go train there, you know, you don't have a lot of the macho ego kind of bullshit that you get here with weekend warriors or guys who are sitting in their office all day and, and once or twice, you know, a month they need to feel if like a man. If you're in a gym all day, so that, you don't have anything to prove. That's what I always try to tell people. I've spent a very little yeah. amount of time around like karate and Muay Thai and jiu-jitsu. But what you find is that the people who train every day are just teddy bears and so laid back because mm-hmm. they have nothing to prove. And they, once you've been choked out a few times, and I have, it, <laughs> it makes you very humble <laughs> very well, and quickly. It, and then add to that, that it's your profession. So if you get hurt, there's no money coming in. Yeah. You know, so I've heard people say, I've never trained in Thailand, but I've heard people say the same thing about training Thai, uh, Muay Thai there, that they, they know how to spar light. They know how to go easy because they're fighting every week, yeah. you know, and it's a paycheck. So, it's the same with Samba over there. That's been my experience. You know, over here you get, you have to deal with a lot more of the macho man attitudes. Well, People I heard about Damian Maya training one time. Somebody was watching and he, one of his friends were just going through some technique with jujitsu and they were constantly tapping each other and there was no ego involved and there was no problem. I mean, Damian Maya is one of the best grapplers in mm-hmm. his profession, but he was just totally cool. And like he, he didn't mind being tapped or, or tapping or whatever, but it's just one of those things where He's already proven all that he has to prove, so there's no reason to rip his friend's arm off or get his own arm ripped off. Nobody's trying to hurt each other. They're just trying to get better. Yeah, exactly. So, But anyway, that's how, that's how I got into uh, Sambo. And then I've always aspired to work in films and, and TV and stuff. I mean, that was like a goal when I was young. You know, I went to camp, you know, New York Institute of Technology here in New York when I was a kid and, you know, like junior high school age. They had a, a summer camps for kids, but... It was they had a filmmaking camp, so I actually went to camp for a couple summers for filmmaking. Not that that really made me a great filmmaker per se, but at a very young age, I started learning the concepts behind editing and framing and shooting. And you know, basically, you would be with a group of kids and you'd be mentored by one of the film students there. I imagine that's who they were, although I didn't really know at the time they were just the camp counselor. But I'm sure they were students in the film program. And you know, so you have five or six kids in your group, and then you'd spend the summer creating a film um everything from script to screen you know and uh it was a great experience and so it really planted that seed in me and then just being young at the age of like indiana jones when the first raiders of the you know like of course i was a huge star wars fan right that was 77 i was nine years old it like blew me away but really I think the two most influential films for me in terms of really kind of wanting to get into this business was um, the first Raiders of the Lost Ark and then um, American War of London. Nice. Those those two movies, man, made me really. And then I remember I remember even at that age, I remember the time like American War of London being the first film. You know, that was the first year that they had Oscars for for makeup and and all that. So. uh, for, for that kind of special effects. Was that Rick Baker uh, or Rob Boutine? I always get the two of them. That was so. Rick Baker, I Rick believe. Baker. Yeah, because I know they, in the early 80s, they were they were the two undisputed kings uh, of their field. But it's got to be exciting for you, though, as somebody who's a martial arts fan as well as a movie fan, seeing how much martial arts and martial arts in movies have evolved over the last 40 years. And there's always phases and there's always fads. But obviously, due to mixed martial arts, we've seen 
people's understanding of martial arts evolved pretty rapidly. And I'm always kind of torn in one watching movies. Do you want to see movies that capture martial arts like really, really accurately the way we do, like when we watch like mixed martial arts in the UFC, or do we want them, want it to be as fantastic and sensational and dramatic as possible? Or is there a way to do both? And with all these shows and movies you've picked today, it's interesting seeing which ones zig and zag towards realism versus spectacle versus a, a hybrid approach. And it's always right. very exciting to see what choices filmmakers will make on that front. But I imagine for you as a lifelong martial artist, it has to be yeah. a bizarre journey watching all these these trends come and go. Well, what's funny is like I – so like I, I never – even though I was interested in film, I always thought myself I'd be behind the camera. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't until later in life that somehow the light bulb went off. It's like, hey, you're a martial artist. There are these things called, like, stunt people. You know, it's like I had no idea. Like, I was involved in TV as a technical advisor and expert for martial arts long before I got involved in stunts, right? So that was, but again, that was, like, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. And then um, even, uh, I just, if you had seen my library when I was young, it would be all, like, the Rick Baker stuff, like the, you know, back then they would put out the star Wars sketchbook, like all the storyboards and then all this and all that. And then like, I had every, I had all that stuff. You know what I mean? That's really, I used to build dioramas. Me and my friends would make movies on super eight, you know, cause my dad had an old super eight camera. We'd make movies. We'd build, we'd spend like all this time building models just to apps to, to wreck them, just to wreck them. You know, it's like, you know, my buddy, Mike Sarna, at that time when, we, when I was a kid, like we built, we wanted to make this little war movie, you know, so we like built an aircraft carrier, you know, that was probably about two feet long, blew it up, you know, like we, and his father was a, was a uh, kind of like an amateur photographer. And, and so he found a whole bunch of flash powder, like nice. in his house. And so they're like, oh, we're going to make this huge, massive explosion, you know, like we blew up, we blew up the ship with like m80s and stuff but like then we had this little scene where like we we're going to take one of those mini little planes that would go on top of the aircraft carrier put it on fishing line with a little hook totally douse it in model glue right <laughs> and then and then slide it down this wire to on to this rock that was in our backyard that had a massive pile of flash powder on top of it and so we would set the thing on fire the model glue on fire boom down down the, the fishing line it goes and there i am all close up trying to get this awesome close-up shot with the super eight camera and as soon as that thing hit the flash powder like my face like it, i swear to god i thought my face was going to be like burned you know nothing happened thankfully but it scared the poop out of me you did know? you get the shot or did like the lens melt oh no no i got the shot and what was amazing is like because you know i was when we would edit it i was like wow that whole explosion only lasted like three frames you know it was like Anyway, this is my childhood doing stupid things like this, and then, uh, but I never thought about being the, uh, you know, the stunt person. I mean, I knew that stunt people existed. I just didn't. The connection wasn't made for me. Even after, um, say, the way I kind of went to college, thinking I was going to do film, but I went in a different direction, you know. And then um, around 2006, YouTube started, so I started putting out these martial art instructional videos, and then. Uh, that's how I kind of got, I'll just say the word discovered, you know, but that's how the people from Human Weapon, which was the first real show that I worked on. Jason Chambers, I used to watch it. Uh, yeah, I used to, man. Yeah, when I was in business school, I'd watch it, and I would work out at home while watching the episodes, and now it would seem 
perhaps old fashioned if somebody were to go back and watch his old episodes. But at the time, I was just really getting like hardcore into watching UFC. And so to have that on the side, it, it all helped fuel my interest in the sport. Yeah, man. And so that's they they did the episode of on Sambo, right? So um, the production reached out to me uh, with their treatments, and you know, so I kind of advised them on like some stuff and i hooked them up with some of the people that were in the you know what that they visited over there uh the taekwondo episode is amazing when they yeah. one guy got knocked out clean by the instructor that he was sparring with like it's like a, a flying something or other and the big football player what was his name oh, like, bill duff bill duff yeah. i mean he got knocked out of this century i was like oh god like is well, he even alive i don't want to say that the Sambo fight that Bill Duff had was fixed, but I, I will say it that he, it was definitely a work. It was like, um, you know, he, he basically, they had trained at, uh, my, what I'll call my, my, my coach. I, he's who I mainly trained when I go to Russia, uh, Igor Koronoi. And, um, so he, that was, he, that was one of the gyms, the gym where they taught like scissor takedowns and stuff. That was Igor's gym on the show. And so Igor had told, myself and greg humphreys who is a old-time sambo and judo friend of mine out of iowa he was like the sambo judo coach at uh, miltich fighting systems in iowa and uh, he was also an advisor on the episode he told us that you know the producer said come up to him and said you know bill hasn't won a single fight in the whole yeah, show yet football player not an mma <laughs> guy yeah 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 and 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 kind of like not even a I don't, you know, not a real football player. Let's just say that it wasn't like he whereas, wasn't. He whereas wasn't Jason NFL. Chambers was a legit MMA competitor and does commentary, and yeah. I mean, yeah, Jason Chambers is a real deal. And to and to Bill's credit, he stuck with it. I, you know, in years later, I'd seen him. I've see I would see him competing at Grappler's Quest and stuff like that. Like he got really good. You know what I mean? But I think probably the show was a big part of why what inspired him to get good. Gotcha. But um, they kind of said like, hey, he hasn't won anything yet, and so they put him against a a 17 year old kid that like never really fought before, you know, like it was kind of like, I mean, I don't care how big and strong you are though. If somebody's 17 years old and they're a wrestler or they're in a Sambo or whatever, I'm not going anywhere near them. But they're so young and powerful, like a high school, high school wrestlers. They terrify me far more than like your average kind of tough guy in a bar and that sort of, well, thing. they train like animals. You yeah. Know? They, <laughs> the work ethic is there, but anyway, so bill won. And, but that was, that was my segue into, into working in television. And then I got some more jobs after that. The honey tackles the globe. I was on that on travel channel. And then, uh, around the same time. And this, uh, so my original point was that it was the YouTube channel, my YouTube channel, the, how they found me, Gotcha. you know? And then again, it was my YouTube channel, how, um, the 87 11 guys found me YouTube and Sambo have been very good to me. And then, uh, so in 2006, I Started, I mean, in 2014, I started really thinking that that's when the light bulb went off. Like, oh, I can, there's this, I can actually do stunts and use my skills. And, you know, it just kind of clicked. And then so from that time, 2014 till now, it's been uh, sort of like a passion. And, you know, I've been uh, obsessed with it, I guess. Well, it seems like such a fascinating field, and I love this overlap between the world of like retired boxers, retired MMA practitioners, and filmmaking. I think it was Kickboxer Retaliation a couple of years ago where you had 
aging actors like Jean-Claude Van Damme, aging boxers like Mike Tyson, and aging MMA fighters like Roy Big Country Nelson all working together. And I was like, this is so cool that they can make this really fun martial arts spectacle, and everybody's getting a second, third act in life in their career. And I find that incredibly encouraging, though, because the life of a fighter is a short one, and most of them don't end in a way where they have a ton of financial security, and they probably are racked with injuries and problems. And it's just great that they can have this this avenue. They don't just have to go into like the world of podcasting or YouTube talking about fighting. They can actually go into movies. Sure. So I imagine you bump into these uh, characters on a pretty routine basis. Yeah, yeah. And some of them can't make the transition um, because screen fighting is so diamet- diametrically opposed to to real fighting, like w- the way you have to behave, you know. Um, you, you basically have to do everything wrong, you know. Um, and some guys, I think it's hard for them to turn off the the proper way to fight. And, yeah, and like if you fighting. see a triangle on screen, perhaps doing it really, really well isn't necessarily going to be the most interesting way to see it on camera because most people seeing the movie aren't going to know how to apply a triangle. So maybe you need to loosen things up a little bit just to make it a little yeah, more obvious what's going to, on. Yeah, there needs to be more space between the two of you. You know, like everything needs to be elongated and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say make it beautiful, like dancing, like any elongation, like a dancer might do it, but you do need that space and distance for people to actually enjoy the movement, you know, like Gina Carano and Haywire thought did a really good job of that, of using the technique, but yeah. making it accessible to people outside of her world. And I think yeah. she and Steven Soderbergh just did a colossal job together. Oh yeah. There were some great fights in there. And then, and, and what I would say, like kind of brought bring it back to what you said before, you can be more real now because audiences, I think the audiences in, in this generation understand fighting better just because of the, because of MMA and things like that. Um, you know, it's like if you would go back in the early days of MMA and watch it in Japan, the audience understood because, you know, like martial arts is such a big part of the culture. Even if people quiet. don't, that's the cool thing. Yeah, they're all Everybody's quiet. Definitely they're silent. They understand like, you know, like, um, what's happening and, you know, here in America at that time, if somebody was, they started grappling, the audience would start booing. You know, well, I'd go to Buffalo to... Wild Wings to watch fights when I first got into business school. And this is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And there were fight fans who weren't necessarily fight experts. And they just went, man, why don't he hit him? And just like, it's like, yeah, exactly. please stop talking. Like you're, you're bothering me. <laughs> but, you know, the American fans now are, understand grappling better. You know what I mean? And they understand all that stuff. So, you know, like what a fan, what a moviegoer might have bought into or accepted 30 years ago, you know, like John Wayne, Haymaker, Punch kind of thing. They would be fine with that. That just won't fly today. You know, it's a much more educated audience, you know. So you, so you kind of get to find that middle ground. You don't have to you have to you have to make it fantastical for screen, but you can also use real stuff you know what i mean you want the illusion of authenticity and one of the movies you chose today i think did a brilliant job of that where with way of the gun where they brought in a lot of technical expertise that makes it feel grounded but at the same time you're still watching these wild crazy over-the-top shootouts and that sort of thing would you say qualifies you as a donor um i would say i am a fairly good-looking man physically fit stable i've never killed a man a big burden this is one of those days For the record, I'll call myself Mr. Parker. My associate will be Mr. Longbow. At some point, it became clear to us that our path had been chosen and we had nothing to offer the world. 
So we stepped off the path and went looking for the fortune that we knew was looking for us. And here was the thing. The longest distance between two points is a kidnapper and his money. But we were through jerking around. What I heard was you ready to put a woman's life at risk for money. Not money. $15 million. $15 million. $15 million. You are here because you are for sale. And you will do as you are told. You just bring me back my baby. You're not going to make it out of here alive. What kind of kidnapping is this? Can't you people see there are guns here? So, uh, are you the brains of the outfit racing? Tell you the truth, I don't think this is a brains kind of operation. Yeah, yeah. So if you bring in the right experts and you can train the actors and you know to do things properly like you know like way the gun or any any good shootout like John Wick or you know a collateral we talked I think you and I offline we talked about collateral in the past like you know things that the maybe the firearms community looks at and say hey that's really good tactical work. Val Kilmer used to boast and brag that there's somebody in the UK who in the military, when they're they showing their cadets the way to uh, change a clip really quickly, they were showing his scene from Heat where he was shooting oh, yeah. at the cops, drops down, changes the clip, and goes, and goes right back at it. And like, if you can't change a clip as, as quickly as that Hollywood actor, like, you don't belong in this core, like, so on and so <laughs> forth. But Val well, Kilmer's very proud of that. That's one of the great things about Way of the Gun. Like, uh, like one of the ways you could tell they were really trained or one of the, the really cool things that maybe the average person won't notice is, like, all the one-handed magazine changes – even at the end, like, because uh, I rewatched it before the podcast, like that finale, the finale shootout, you know, when James Kahn is reloading his revolver, the way he holds the revolver shows he knows how to reload a revolver properly. You know what I mean? And it's like, and the same thing, like, uh, when, um, yeah, it's just the way the magazine changes. There's a lot of one handed changes there that are really, uh, you could tell people really worked hard on that. Yeah, I know? read on IMDb that Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director, his brother is a Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL. Who was yeah, brought yeah. in as the technical advisor. So the coordinated movements, the way they use cover, the way you retreat, all these things were injected with a lot more realism yep. than your typical action film. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's like his, his brother's name is Doug, and um, he's a Navy SEAL career guy. He also was the weapons expert and technical advisor for Mission Impossible. Uh, you know, basically anything that Macquarie, Chris, Chris Macquarie directed, like if there's technical yeah. firearms stuff. His career probably... has exploded. He did uh, five and six, so which I guess were Fallout and Rogue Nation, or Rogue Nation yeah. Fallout. I get up the order mixed up, and he's doing number seven as well. But here, yeah. I mean, when he wrote Usual Suspects, I was like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, a good, he's a good screenwriter. And then he made Way of the Gun, which, you know, made a... 
it made an impact, but it didn't take off like a rocket. And then it seems like he almost kind of went into limbo for a while. But in, over the last 10 years, Christopher McQuarrie's career has exploded. I mean, he's reached the, 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 the biggest heights you can reach as an yeah. action director in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. So Way of the Gun is great, man. I love that. I mean, there's just so many great things about it. I mean, if you want to start with that one. Sure, let's we're, dive we're in while, while, while I mean, we're on the subject. It's so great. Like, some of the stuff that I was already mentioning that I was going to mention is the magazine changes. But even, like, their tactical movement in that finale scene, like, through the building when they're inside, like, the two-man room clearing, like, little things like that, the way they moved, you know, and um, it was just so good to watch. You know, it was really, really good. And, and... The sounds are really good, too. You know, the sound they chose, to, you know, I, there's nothing I, I hate more than seeing a gunfight where the, the guns don't sound epic, you know, even if it's it wouldn't sound epic in real life. This is a movie. It should sound epic. You know yeah. what I mean? And so I love those epic sounds. Well, for the longest time, I resisted watching it because I, I've got an issue. People who've heard the podcast in the past are probably tired of hearing me talk about this, but I have a an intense resistance to pretty boys in movies, whether it's Jared Leto <laughs> or young Leonardo DiCaprio, or in this case, Ryan Philippe or Felipe or however you yeah, say his name. And so Ryan I just Philippe. thought he was yeah. in the late nineties. I was in college when he exploded with things like cruel intention. I was like, this guy is such a weenie. And of course I was jealous that he was, you know, with this insanely hot girl, Reese Witherspoon, <laughs> who's doing all these incredible movies like election and freeway. I just loved Reese yeah. Witherspoon. She was on fire in the late nineties. And so I've always kind of hated Ryan Philippe, but I have to admire just how much work he put into the choreography and just the dedication for shooting this final scene. And so I will give credit where credit is due. He definitely yeah. brought his A game in, in with his dedication to this role. It, I mean, it's it was a great movie, man. If people haven't seen it, they should definitely see it. I mean, it's it's like twenty years old now. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's. Uh, Benicio Del Toro still looks young. Like he looks like he's like young and beautiful, even though Maffer saw him licensed to kill in the late '80s. I mean, he was like he's really lean and mean there, but uh, he'd been around a while before he really popped with Usual Suspects. Yeah, I mean, and and the stunt coordinator's name coordinator's name is Gary Paul, and we can't forget that because even the weapons technical advisors they're they're not always involved in you know they're making sure everybody looks proper how they handle their weapons, but putting that whole scene together is really second unit director or stunt coordinator. It's along long. It goes on for like 30 minutes. There's an ebb yeah. and flow and sometimes it's indoors, sometimes it's outdoors. Yep. And one of, I, mean, I love it when directors pay homage to the great films of the past. And I love how he's got musical cues from the professionals, which is a Western that I love, but it's quite literally the exact same location as the finale of Butch Casting and Sundance Kid. And the mm -hmm. characters' names, their last names, come from Butch Cassidy and his kids. So it's, it's when, a great homage. Yeah. So with the fact that McQuarrie was willing to tip his hat to that earlier film to such a great degree, that also uh, put a big smile on my face. Yeah. Oh man, that scene when he jumps into the well and it's yeah, all yeah. full of broken bottles and stuff. Savage. Totally savage. That's so good. Like yeah. the little things like that that you just didn't expect. You also, know? you can get numb to action if there's not some variety. If it's just like guns, 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 then I'm like, all right, I'm, I've kind of had my fill. It's like like nudity yeah. and showgirls. After a certain point, you just you stop seeing the nudity because you've just seen so much. But if you can change the rhythm, change the tempo, change yeah. the type of violence, so suddenly in the middle of the fight, you just have all this broken glass embedded in Brian Phillips arm it's yep. just a great little punctuation moment that really makes you kind of say like oh my god that looks horrible that looks painful yeah i mean i'll probably i mean i'll probably get some haters here but like you know everybody talks about heat you know but it's like um 
that was not one of my favorite movies. Like, <laughs> I just not a huge fan of the movie. I, I appreciate the the gun stuff that everybody talks about with Heat, but like the movie itself, I was just I don't know. It's not it's not up in my top ten. Let's put it that way. It's a little too much, Michael Mann. Okay, you know? gotcha. Like Fair enough. What would you say about the? I was reading a bit about this. And I didn't quite understand, but when they're running out of ammunition, talking about sweeping guns on their strong side versus their weak side to access handguns. Talk a little bit about the tactical way that you are supposed to kind of make those those pivots or those transitions? Well, I am I wouldn't call myself a tactical expert, although I've done a lot of training with it, you know, and I, I go shooting a lot and um uh I try to train as much as I can because like I mean anybody in this business has to be believable. You know, like I can only I can speak just from a personal experience. I was in a scene in Blacklist where I was playing a mercenary. Uh, Brent, it was an episode with Brent Spiner. He was playing the the bad Data. guy. Data yeah. himself. <laughs> super super cool dude, by the way. But um, and I was one of the henchmen, and I had to run up. Uh, I I was the one who apprehends somebody, and um, I didn't think of it as um, anything special. And I it wasn't even a conscious decision, but it was how I apprehended the guy. You know, using keeping my um, dominant hand i'm a righty you know keeping my dominant hand on the weapon keeping it uh back and close to me and apprehending the guy with my left hand my non-dominant hand and all yeah you know, like all this kind of stuff trigger discipline all these things and and trigger it just discipline just means your finger's not on the trigger unless you're about to fire right. exactly yeah just the way i you know i guess i've done enough training where it's second nature so there was no conscious decisions there but i got uh, some nice messages from military friends of mine that, about that scene after it happened. And they were like, Hey man, you really looked like a pro, you know, you handled that very well. That's exactly how you're supposed to do it. Dominant, non-dominant hand. Cause I guess a lot of people who are not aware, like if you got to grab somebody, you'll use your dominant hand. Right. But right now my dominant hand is on my weapon, you know, not. So I got to use my non-dominant hand to do that. But a lot of times you'll go on set and they'll, you'll know what to do properly and then you'll be directed to do something improperly just because of how it looks, you know, like not sweeping, like if you're doing a room clearing thing or like in that very scene of, in that very episode of blacklist, the, the whole bunch of us mercenaries, like four of us had to come in from between these tall um, servers, computer servers into this kind of like hacker party that was going on. Right. We were all keeping our, our barrels low and not sweeping the people in front of us with the barrel, but, the director wanted us to do it because they wanted to see the flashlights on the things waving around gotcha. and they wanted that visual effect. So like, I'm like, yeah, I would never do this in real life. Like pass the barrel of my gun across my partner's back in front of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even, I'm, but, I've, I've got very little experience with guns, but I've done a, a fair amount of quail hunting. And the big rule there is you got two shooters and one shoots from 12 o'clock and then everything to the right. And the other shoots from 12 o'clock and everything to the left. And you never cross that line ever. And you're yeah. making a huge mistake. If you see your partner's barrel, like swinging by your head, like, no, <laughs> well, and that's how you'll know. Like if you watch room clearing, you know, or I've done some training, I, I trained up, um, I was lucky enough to be a guest instructor up at West Point, like the with uh, some friends of mine who are from the Army Combatives Program down in um, Fort Campbell in uh, Kentucky. But they come up to West Point for two weeks to teach the cadets up there. So I was up there as a guest instructor, obviously not in the tactical stuff, but in the the hand to hand stuff. I was teaching them some throws and things like that. And then, uh, but I got to be the bad guy in the room in, in the uh, you know the room clearing drills and stuff and. Nice. Uh, 
And then since then, I've trained a bunch with my buddy Charles Haskins, who's a stunt performer here in New York and a career military man. And he teaches a lot of uh, tactical stuff for actors and stunt people. We've done a lot of room clearing stuff in the in the um, in the gym that you guys are at. I mean, you saw we had piles of cardboard boxes, right? So we just build out rooms like giant Legos and we cool. practice. And uh, but to your point, you know, the first man in goes this direction, second man in goes this direction. You're always fanning out to opposite sides, going around. You know, and then everything depends on which way the door opens and does it open out, does it open in, what's the shape of the room, but. Number two man will never follow number one man directly in, like right behind him. You're always going to go a different direction, kind of like your quail. quail you don't want to end up with a circular firing squad. Well, no, speaking no, of, no. Uh, in that you're into, you have done so much with throws and takedowns, but obviously right now the John Wick movies are so popular. Do sure. you like what's going on in the choreography there where they're making those transitions from guns to takedowns? Because I feel like they do vary the action pretty successfully where he's shooting but then somebody will grab him and suddenly he's going into throws and takedowns and that sort of thing i love it man i i love it i mean i i tell people like uh so so you know before john wick one people hadn't really seen anything like that like it was a definite genre changer for film you know and you'll have these mov movies throughout throughout history that are kind of like you know like the matrix was one yep and then um yeah, something comes along and changes action basically for a decade. And yeah, then we had well, that, that Yuen Wo Ping, yeah. we had that double punch of Crouching Tiger plus The Matrix in basically the same calendar year. And suddenly yep. it changed yep. martial arts choreography in Hollywood, at least. I mean, he'd been doing this stuff in Hong Kong for 20 years, but Hollywood sure. finally caught up. Yep, yep. And then, but eventually stuff started getting, you know, kind of real. But I mean, I would say that, you know, John Wick 1 is definitely a, a, a game changer in terms of what people can see and start to expect in yeah. terms of you started getting of atomic blonde after that you start getting extraction after that like both atomic yep. blonde and extraction are clearly indebted to the style of action in john wick well they're all 87 11 people gotcha. they all come out of the same lineage right so um it's the same people <laughs> so it's gonna they have the same formula you know like how to train actors and how to how to um they they don't it's not like um they expect their actors to put in a good six months of training yeah, I mean, you Charlie Theron went all in on Atomic Blonde and just yeah. covered in, in bruises and lacerations and that sort of thing. Yeah. She's another actress who's just completely, totally invested when it comes to doing the martial arts. Well, and you know, and it's you brought it up before, it's that fine line between fantastic and unbelievable. You know what I mean? So it's like what I like about the Wick choreographies or what they call Gun Fu is that it seems believable. Like, you, you know, that obviously, like, what everything that he does is not, he's not going to take out six guys at once and pop, 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 you know, like a real person would do that, but he's using legitimate techniques, you know, kind of, uh, beautified for, for film and the, the transition between firearm and hand to hand and firearm and hand to hand is so seamless that it's believable. You can, you can, it's easy to suspend your disbelief because he's using legit technical, uh, tactical movements and he's using legit, you know, hand-to-hand -hand movements. And, um, and it's it all, Keanu. It's he flies into the sky like an angel. I'm going to believe it because Keanu knows, <laughs> how, he knows how to sell it. <laughs> yeah, so I love it all. I love it all. You know, it's like um, I have zero complaints. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say it's all believable and exciting. And what I was going to say is they, like everybody else, will have to evolve. You know what I mean? They'll have to come up with something new. It's just the, the name of the game. I think Extraction kind of took it a different 
direction, a few steps forward in the types of action you can do. I mean, it's clearly like sort of uh, has its roots in 8711 type of uh, choreography, but definitely some different use of the firearms and things like that. Well, I think once they see what's going on in Gangs of London, they're going to say, whoa, we're not the only game in town because what's going on in that show? I mean, you and I have talked offline about the episode one, which has the all-time great pub fight scene yeah that, that scene is great i mean that's savage. the only episode i've seen but that scene is so good like when he breaks his leg on the edge of the bar oh yeah. my god i was like that's so beautiful yeah it's i mean it's a little more brutal than the style in john wick and a little less beautiful yeah but it's equally complex but man when you when you get to episode five there's a, a fight scene the last but it's a lot like way of the gun where it's a it's a long fight scene with a lot of variety yeah. where you basically have a bunch of people outside of a building laying siege to a building and so it keeps changing it's my favorite piece of entertainment that i've seen in 2020 that episode five of gangs of london nice. and so i hope that all the guys working on the john wick films and extraction films etc they're taking note of what they're you know they're what they are what their sure peers they are. are doing in, in the same field we all do. We all watch what everybody's doing, but it you're it is more brutal. But it's a, it should be more brutal because it it this it's a different kind of story, you know. And the 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 people fighting are different people. Like the John Wick folks are supposed to be highly trained, very polished, very technical. It's not going to be that brutal pub fight. You yeah. know what I mean? That's that has like there's technique there, but it has that edge of sloppiness and brutality to it. And that's like entirely stabbing guys with like a dart 20 times. In a row. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> or a pencil. I mean, John Wick did the pencil, right? Yeah. But it's still, it's still, it's just like the, the fight has to honor the story. Yep. You can't have just cool stuff because it's cool stuff. Well, that's what caught me off guard about that pub fight scene is that you're watching this gangster saga in the middle of London, where it almost feels like a show like succession, where it's a lot of people in suits having angry confrontations. And then suddenly this fight starts. We're like, what the fuck? Like, this is so much better than I thought it was gonna be. Like I had no yeah. idea. I had no idea a fight on that level was coming my way. Like halfway through the first episode. Oh, I know. It's so good. When I got it, you know, like I, like I told you offline, I had gotten a screener from somebody, and I was like, "Holy cow! This is so good, man. Yeah. This is so good." Dear Points High alumni, can you believe it's been ten years since you left Gross Point? Don't tease me. You know what I do for a living. I just honestly don't know what I have in common with those people anymore. And what am I going to say? I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Go see some old friends. Have some punch. Visit with what's her name? Debbie. Don't kill anybody for a few days. See what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot. Don't shoot anything. I, uh, I'm a pet psychiatrist. I sell couch insurance. I lead a weekend men's group. We specialize in ritual killings. Hi, I'm Martin. You remember me? Oh, I know who you are. What I miss? What, since you stood me up on prom night and vanished without a word? I'll come home. Yeah, I'm putting together a little concern. You mean like a union? Too much trouble. Just a moment. You haven't changed a bit. Don't say that. <laughs> what do you do, Martin? Professional killer. Oh, good for you, it's a pro industry. Do you have to do postgraduate work for that, or can you can you jump right in? 
There's a contract out in your life, but I'm not going to do it. It's either because I'm in love with your daughter or I have a newfound respect for life. That punk is either in love with that guy's daughter or he has a newfound respect for life. Debbie, I'm in love with you. I know we can make this relationship work. It's not easy for me. I always control my emotions. I just need time to change. Why don't you just join the union? This union, is there going to be meetings? Of course! No meetings. I want you to think about this, and you don't have to answer it now. But Debbie, will you marry me? Well, let's talk about another one of your choices, which gave me a, just waves of nostalgia as I revisited it. But 1997, Gross Point Blank, which I actually <laughs> saw on a date as an undergrad. And yep. I, I, at the time, she asked me to take her to see it. I was like, it's a John Cusack comedy? That sounds dumb as hell. Little did I know, the movie's funny as hell and has really good action scenes. So for people out yeah. there who have been living under a rock and who have not seen Dragons Forever or Wheels on Meals, who is Benny the Jet? So, yeah, Benny the Jet, it, by the way, he was the fight coordinator, but he wasn't the stunt coordinator on that film. But to your question, Benny the Jet was a former pro fighter, kickboxer, legendary guy who, like, a, you know, who segued into films. And I think he, um, this is the story that I know, so, so maybe I'm not entirely correct, but this is the story that I know, is that he first met Cusack on Say Anything. Yep. When, uh, you know, Cusack was, his character was like kickboxing sport of the future, you know. So he was learning kickboxing with uh, Benny the Jet and he continued to train with him. And they clearly have a relationship because the next film, I guess, we'll talk about later, War, Inc., you know, Benny the Jet was also the fight coordinator and that was a later movie of Cusack's. Um, so I've got to believe that uh, they, they built up a relationship and probably Cusack brings them along. You know, that would be my guess, you know. If uh, somebody on that level probably has the the ability to say, this is who I want, you know, Absolutely. And, uh, so it's got to be Benny the Jet. But the fighting in um, well, just everything, it's, it's just a great movie. Dan Aykroyd is so good in it. And then um, the whole concept of it, you know being an assassin, going back to your high school reunion. and just Also, love it's like, here we are in 2020 and people are still making all these shows and movies as love songs to the 80s. And I'm like, well, Gross Point Blank was doing it back in 1997. And I feel like that at that time, the 80s nostalgia was probably more appropriate. And so seeing as a high school reunion for people who are age appropriate to be nostalgic about the 80s works. Now I feel like we've spent more time honoring the 80s than we actually spent in the 80s. And so I'm kind of <laughs> tired of 80s nostalgia. I've, I've run out of 80s nostalgia, but Gross Point Blank, it absolutely works. When you're hearing 99 Luftballons during the, yeah. the, the during the, the party, while there's yeah. this brawl taking place up in the hallway, it's, it's just pure magic. But man, that scene... You're having this great little moment where John Cusack's going through his old locker. He finds a joint yep. that he buried up in there, and it's like a little nostalgic moment for him. And it's so quiet, and suddenly Benny the Jet comes around the corner, and it's just it's so on. Dude, that's the first fight that I saw. Like, and that fight still holds up today 100%. by today's standards. Hundred percent. It was like it still has that Benny the Jet kickboxing flair with like side kicking people into into the you know like he's you know cusack side kicks him into the uh lockers Looks and great. there's yeah there's a lot of that kind of classic benny the jet type of technique but there's also grappling there's also improvised weapons he ends up killing him with the pen and then um you know there it, it was it was like one of the first kind of you know mixed style fights that really put everything together you know like the stand up 
the takedown, the grappling, the use what's around you. It was just so good. You know, I think it's, I think um, maybe it flies under the radar when people think about the history of screen fighting. Like it was a really progressive fight for that time. I think, I think. a lot of people have disregarded this movie as just some frivolous 90s kind of rom-com. And it's not that at all. It's actually kind of a... Uh like a cynical, sadistic movie in a lot of ways. Like when you have these conversations where he's talking about um, how like, you know, it's like, no, 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 like I'm not a psychopath. Psychopaths kill for no reason. I kill for money. It's a job. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's very insightful in a lot of ways. And so that stuff just absolutely cracks me up. It's not the only fight scene though where we get Benny the Jet. We get the great shootout and the, I guess not a mini Mart, an, an, an ultimart where they just have this epic shootout. And so I just love the fact right. that we finally got Benny the Jet on the screen because in the 80s, he and Jackie Chan are two of the all time great oh, fight yeah. scenes that I've ever seen. But I'm seeing right here in one of my notes, um, Benny the Jet got to work with Cusack both in front of and behind the scenes on Gross Point Blank, 1408, Dragon Blade, uh, War Inc., The Contract, and Con Air. So they've worked together on a ton of movies together. Yeah. And and I think I think you can tell because from what I understand, like Cusack just kept training with him, you know, like after saying anything, like actually training. You know, for sure, he has stunt doubles and stuff like that, like most of the actors do. You know, like even Keanu will tell you, like, I'm not I don't do stunts. I do action. But that's not me getting hit by a car, you yeah. know, or like whatever. Yeah. Cusack. One of the things I like about it, like that he clearly has trained. Maybe maybe he's not training as much now or whatever. But if you go and look at War Inc., uh, you know, if you fast forward, Benny the Jet was also a fight coordinator on that. There's a lot of nice long shots. Yeah, and it's also kind of the unofficial sequel to Gross Point Blank. It's not yeah. technically a sequel, but it's kind of the spiritual sequel where every, yeah. it's 10 years later and everybody working on it. It's once again John Cusack and Joan working together, and everybody kind of felt like they were picking up where they left off. Yeah. And, and Cusack still does the big sidekick. You know, it's like there's all the, there's some of the hallmark moves that you, from the, the Gross Point Blank fight that are in that, that, um, fight that I sent you the link to from War Inc. where he takes on the six guys. And I like that scene where, like, I mean, first and foremost, he's pretty hardcore. He bites off a guy's finger and spits it. But there's this great bit where he's kind of doing these feints and taunting. And you always think, when I think of John Cusack, of course I'm going to start thinking of things like 16 Candles where he's like this baby-faced youth and he's just kind of yeah. cute and adorable. He's one of like kind of those 80s icons. But he actually does sell the tough guy thing because he's not trying too hard to prove what a tough guy is. It's more understated. And yeah. I think people have neglected to recognize that he actually can totally do action just fine, yeah. whether it's Con Air, War Inc., or Gross Point Blank. Yep, totally. I mean, back to Gross Point Blank, well, or to that scene where he's doing the fakes. I love that scene. That's where he's beat up all these dudes and then this other guy comes out and he pulls his gun on him and pulls the trigger and realizes his gun's empty. Like, I love, I love that. Right. And then, um, the fakes were the guy starts throwing punches and he starts blocking the punches with his gun. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. The guy's my favorite, that's my favorite part by far. That's so good. I was like that. That's like what we were talking about. That's like diving into the, uh, into the fountain in um, way of the gun, you know, it's, it's something different. And it's it's a it's a little bit of flavor that you didn't expect. You know, yeah, you need something tactile like that where you can really relate. Like people can relate to a pen going into the neck or a hand colliding on a gun. You need something that make, makes the audience feel what's happening. Yeah, but on Gross Point Blank, it, the the stunt coordinator for that movie is Buddy Joe Hooker, who is like super legend. Like anybody who's listening should just go look him up on 
IMDb. He's one of those guys that'll have like hundreds of, you know, he's been around since the late sixties. You know, it's like, so that's the kind of guy that I would love to work with. You know, like I haven't worked with any of the guys that have been around that long yet. Also, if you can so, make Dan Aykroyd a credible action menace, like you're doing something right. Like Dan Aykroyd at this point, he's not doing cocaine anymore. He's packed on some weight. And I remember watching this, at, I would have been 21 when it came out and seeing it. And I'd, you know, I'd grown up on his movies where he's, you know, Blues Brothers and like Lean and Mean. Yeah. But to see him kind of chubby, but running around like John Woo style with guns in each hand, taking people out, I was just... It, it worked as an as action, but also made me crack up all at once. And for me, it was kind of a resurrection for Dan Aykroyd at that time. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's. I'm trying to think of what movies Aykroyd did that. I mean, it was comedy, but he, I don't. I mean, it's definitely a, a departure. Well, he's him. so intense and so obsessive. It reminds me of his earlier characters, like in Ghostbusters. But he just happens instead of being obsessed with the supernatural, he's obsessed with creating this club or this union of, of yeah, this serial union of killers assassins, or killers right. for hire. And the fact actually, that that's kind of funny. That's like a that's like that is very that's a that's a John Wick thing, right? That's like the Continental. Absolutely, like he's like probably the spiritual father to the Continental. Absolutely, he would fit, he would fit right in. He would love yeah. the Continental. Yeah, totally. Um, War Inc. was yeah, that was just great. Like if people haven't seen it, I, I love that movie. And that's well, now, another of one. course, you'd be burned alive for even making it because you've got uh, Hillary uh, Hillary Duff doing brownface as a, an, an Arab pop star, but she's really good yes. in it and uh, she's sexy as hell. And that's probably the only time I've ever actually liked Hillary Duff in anything. But I, I saw it for the first time getting ready for this episode because I, I, yeah. I, I think I'd heard of it, but I just totally disregarded it at the time. But yeah, I definitely enjoyed um, stepping back into that world. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, just the concept of it, like the, the corporatization of war. I mean, it's it's very relevant today, obviously, but yeah, first war totally you know. outsourced to a private company. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. People should check it out. Most of that stunt team and the stunt coordinator are all Bulgarian. That was shot in Bulgaria, and most of those folks, with the exception of Benny, the jet, everybody else is Bulgarian. You know, they're all the Bulgarian stunt coordinator. Most of those. Do you pronounce his last name Urquidez, or how do you say Benny's last name? I've always said it, Urquidez. Urquidez. And where is he from originally? Good question. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, well, true legend. And he's in the 60s now, and he's still working and uh, still seems relatively fit. I mean, he's got a bit of a paunch now, but I feel like once you reach a certain point in your martial arts career, you deserve to grow that Buddha belly. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's a a badge of honor. Yeah, the other thing about that scene that I really loved was, and you brought it up before with – with the uh, way the gun, like the way it was coordinated with the music is the, the blue Danube. It was really, you know, like the, to see this fight with a waltz going on in the background. And it was really, the fight really, really was choreographed well for that music, you know, or at least edited for it. I mean, I don't know if it was like baby driver where they intentionally choreographed every single move to every single song beat every, but you it's know, a perfect, staccato. perfect harmony. Yeah. But also I love just, you have this incredible reunion going on. People are getting wasted and having all these stupid conversations. And when Benny arrives, it's like this monster <laughs> has <laughs> entered the building. He just looks so gnarly and so rugged. Yeah. He is, he is, he just so clearly does not belong with all these other fresh faced youths. But, uh, yeah, yeah his yeah, introduction, yeah. every time he walks into a scene, he just takes over. Yeah, he's awesome. So definitely people should check out war Inc. It's crazy. That's already, uh, what, 12 years older. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about a little uh, Asian cinema. We got two movies yeah. to choose from from 2004. What you want to talk about first? You want to talk about Throwdown or Fighter in the Wind? Oh my god. They're both 2004. I don't know. Let's let's do Throwdown, Johnny Toe. Mm-hmm. 
哥，我系用呢一招嘅啫。Do it, yeah. So,、yeah. Uh, yeah, he's not one of the kind of the the early Hong Kong directors from the seventies and eighties, but he was kind of part of the the next generation of guys to come、yep. along and kind of take the baton. Because a lot of Hong Kong directors started coming over to America in the nineties, and John Woo in particular. But Johnny To, two thousand four, and as you pitched it, it's a it's a movie for grapplers. So, what do you mean when you say it's a movie for grapplers? So, so the movie is actually like an homage to Kurosawa. So.、Um... And it's all judo based, and so you don't see too many Hong Kong judo oriented movies. But、yeah. if you love judo, throws, wrestling, grappling, this is the movie for you, like a hundred percent. It's the and it it does have a very fantastical feel to it, you know, like the whole movie does. But、um, it's the fights are just incredible. The fights are incredible. You know, I just love. It, there's not a fight in there that I. That I don't love. Well,、know? I think a lot of times people forget what happens to a human being when you throw them. I only went to one like throwing practice. My jujitsu school, we had like a day of judo throws, and there's a friend of mine who's a purple belt, and he was really good at throws, but at the same time protect you in a way where you wouldn't hit the ground that hard. Yeah. But even、yep. then, you realize like, oh my god, like if he was trying to put me through the floor. Like I'd be going straight to the ambulance. <laughs> like you'd, yeah, you'd feel it when、you'd、you're colliding with the floor. Things happen to your bones and your and your tendons and your neck. Everything just gets dismantled and flattened. And so one throw <laughs> is kind of all you need.、And、I love how it opens up. This guy's betting a bouncer that he can take him down with one move, and he does it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's such that's such a fun scene because the bouncer is like, you can tell it's just like for fun. It's like a fun little wager. You know what I mean? But like, there's so many fight scenes in there where you've got like ten pairs of people in a square or on a street throwing the crap out of each other. Yeah, there's that giant scene where it's in slow motion. They're fighting inside the club, and then it moves outdoors, and、yep. it's just an entire armada of people just throwing each other just over and over and over again. And yeah, it, it, it is brutal. But yeah, when it comes to the homage to Kurosawa, it's either his first or his second feature,、uh, Sanshiro Sugata, which I saw on VHS back in the late nineties. I was going through a big Kurosawa <laughs> kick, and it's if you're expecting Seven Samurai or Hidden Fortress yeah, or Yojimbo, it's、yeah. not on that level. You can tell he's still learning his craft, but it is cool. And they mention it constantly throughout this movie. And at the very end of the film, it ends with a salute to Akira Kurosawa, and it、yep. it says he is the greatest filmmaker. So I thought it was really cool to see Hong Kong director. Tipping his hat to a Japanese filmmaker. Yeah, the、um, it's just so good, man. And it's another one that a lot of people don't know about. And they just released it last year on Blu-ray too, so you can get it on Blu-ray. Like I have a, a an Asian DVD that I ordered. You know, like I have a DVD from from ten years ago, but it's like、uh, you can get it on Blu-ray now. Which I probably should buy. They probably have a lot of cool extras and yeah, think and stuff. Yeah, I think for for me to see it, I I signed up for some like app within an app within Prime Video. You have like you know a million things like Shutter. Yeah. And so there's、yeah. something for Asian cinema, and I just I signed up for a free trial, and so I was able to get access to it. That, oh, cool. To it that way. Yeah, nice. I mean, the action coordinator, the guy's name is Bun Yun, and 
you know, most Americans probably wouldn't know him, but he was the second unit director on Sammo Hung's TV show, Martial Law. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. We, yeah, we are go. fans of Sammo Hung here at Wrong Wheel. Of we course. did a giant episode with poster designer Tony Stella where we talked about Sammo Hung and uh, Yuen Bu or Bao, however you say his name, and, and Jackie Chan, and all the things they did together. But yeah, Sammo Hung is what, he's tr- quite literally a, a living legend. But legend. yeah, throw down. It had so many cool bits. Like I love training sequences, and I love seeing this guy training with like one arm technique while he's injured. And I yeah. love the uh, the big fight scene at the end where they're, he's finally getting a chance to fight this guy Kong, who's uh, blindfolded. But it comes yep. off during the match. But it it doesn't end with like somebody getting like their head smashed. He just no. Kong concedes. He's like, you know, you beat me. I lost, and <laughs> that's yep. the end of the movie. <laughs> one of the things I loved about the movie, though, is the, where where the are the training sequences in the dojo. I love that because it really shows the reverence, you know, reverence of that space, you know, how important that space is and the camaraderie and brotherhood that happens in there. And inviting people to train at different schools and things like that. Yeah. Some really, some really cool core, uh, like synchronized training that goes on in the dojo scenes, you know, I you know, there's some great like uh, grappling scenes, you know, training together, but also people doing ukemi, like uh, falling together in, you know, synchronized and doing all this stuff synchronized. It's really cool. So, how long does it take when you're training in judo or sambo to stop ripping all the skin off your hands when you grab people? Because, well, like, I had that <laughs> one day of training and you're constantly grabbing someone's gi and then flipping over your shoulder or your hip or whatever. But at the end of the night, I was like, when I got in the shower, I felt like I was bathing in acid because all the skin along the backs of my fingers had been completely rubbed clean. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how often you train, man. But yeah, definitely in the beginning, grabbing the geese all the time will will wreak havoc on your Yeah, on your the, the, no one would warn me about that ahead of time. So when I got in, I was like, ah! But yeah, I was like, all right, I guess uh, at least it shows that I, I got a I good practice in. And then the word, the then the the second hit is when you get home and take a shower. <laughs> it's all burning. That actually just happened tonight because I was working out before I came here, and I have mat burn on my uh, elbow that I didn't know that I had. So I got in the shower before this podcast. Acid bath. Yeah, that 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 one. Yeah, I mean, I, my my exposure to grappling arts has been very limited, but. I would never want to go, but whenever I would finish a class and I'd get home and I'd like look at myself in the mirror and there's all these like welts and burns and that's when I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm man. Like uh, it, it made me feel briefly very, very, very manly. Today, like, while you were working out, you know, grappling, I was taking a bike ride down to the Manhattan Bridge. So yeah, I was equally tough today in my yeah, you were, my, you're my doing workout it. routine. <laughs> well, I wasn't grappling with anybody because we can't actually do that yet. But gotcha. I was uh, working out in the same room with other people and a throwing dummy. But, you know, you do what you can do in the time of COVID. Yeah. I mean, the world of MMA has obviously been completely transformed in terms of how people train for bouts, but they're still having them. But it's just like it's there's so many additional hoops for people to to jump through. Yeah. I actually like seeing the fights with no audience. You can hear the corner, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Hearing the corner is interesting. And there's nobody in the background going, woo, woo. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the woo. No beers getting chugged. Whoever introduced woos to the world of fighting needs to be dunked in hydrochloric acid. I, they just are – they're my enemy for life. While we're on that <laughs> subject, I don't know if you're in the business of making predictions, but tonight, Brian Ortega, a very famous grappler, yes. is uh, coming back after like two years, and he's fighting Korean Zombie. Yeah, no, he, Korean Zombie needs to win this. It's his time. That's what I'm saying. I And, and watch. If he wins, I have a Korean Zombie shirt that I will Instagram. Yeah. I love Korean shirt. Zombie. and. 
I respect the fact that due to being South Korean, he had to interrupt his career by th- for three years to perform his yeah. military service. But it was yep. his three years from his his prime. I was like, no, that's so. And didn't cool. Ortega? No, who didn't Ortega like slap his translator, Brain Zombie's know. translator or something? There's some story there, like where or he slapped uh, Korean Zombie's translator because he didn't like something that Korean Zombie said, but it came out of the translator's mouth and. Interesting. Yeah. Look that up. Luke Thomas, who does a lot of uh, analysis, he brought up the idea that because Brian Ortega tends to take two hits to land one, his theory was that Korean Zombie is going to do well because Korean Zombie, his striking has gotten so good in recent years. You can't take two to land one because he's just going to light you up. So my prediction, stealing from Luke Thomas's analysis, is that Korean Zombie is going to annihilate Ortega. But I I like seeing Ortega back in the world of MMA just because he is a really good jiu-jitsu practitioner. Right, except he's mostly like a jiu-jitsu guy. Like his, like you just said, his striking is not. He's not known to be a good striker. Was he a Henner Gracie guy? I think I can't can't remember. But um, he he's predominantly a grappler guy, and whereas Korean Zombie is everything. Yeah, he's well rounded in all the ranges, you know. And And got the coolest name in MMA. I think the only name that's cooler is uh, Touchy Feely. (laughs) 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 One of my all time favorites. But Korean Zombie's pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't know. Anytime you have a guy who's fairly one dimensional against a guy who's not, you can pretty much bet that the the more well rounded guy will win. And plus, Korean Zombie is is awesome. Yeah, you know he's he's so badass. And he he I love Luke Thomas too, by the way. Oh, he's great. Yeah. I've met him a few times because oh, Spike, Spike TV um, use my gym as a as a location. They would record a lot of their old um, pre-fight interviews and stuff at my place, the place where you were at. And then also when we were on the sixth floor, we used to be on the sixth floor. But yeah, so a lot of the pre-fight shows have been filmed at, at our gym. So I've met Luke and, uh, and uh, a bunch of the, the guys. Yeah, I, I love his uh, show that he does with um... – uh, Brian Campbell, they uh, they do a lot of uh, fun give and take and talking about being tip to tip and all kinds of crude yeah. humor. But it's funny seeing like Brian Campbell, who's kind of the crude juvenile, and Luke's a little bit more, a little more serious. But they they're a great yeah. studying contrast. But while we're on the subject of Korea, let's switch gears to Fighter in the Wind, South oh, Korean yeah, film from 2004, <laughs> directed by Yun Ho Yang, if I'm saying that correctly. But this is. That, um, yeah based yeah. on a very famous uh, competitor. So for people out there who have never heard of the the central character of this movie, give us the historical backdrop. So Masoyama is the central character, and he is the founder of Kyokushin Karate. And he is Korean, not Japanese, uh, but he was, you know, under Japanese occupation in, in Korea. And I don't want to give it too much away, but, you know, it, it, it starts... The, the film starts under in Korea under Japanese occupation, and Masayama does end up in Japan later on and um, creates the new style of karate called Kyokushin. You know, after, you know, it's the very mythic story. He goes away and meditates in the mountains and comes Break, up. Breaks with, rocks with his hands. Yeah, breaks rocks and stuff like Anybody that. Anybody who likes the training sequence from Rocky Four will appreciate the training sequence from Fighter in the Wind because he just goes to live in the woods and he's punching trees and breaking rocks and running through snow and he gets very, yep. becomes a mountain man, get, get, gets strong. So it's you know, obviously playing into some of the more kind of, I wouldn't say propaganda, but the more mythic elements where they're, yes. you're, you're building up a national hero. And so yep. they're, they're, they're making them larger than life. 
I mean, I don't yeah. know if it would actually. Be and I love it. What yeah. like after all that, right? When he goes around challenging everybody, he's in the most dirty, ratty gi with holes in it from you know spending years up in the in the living in a cave and stuff. It's like his hair is a rat's nest, and he's just fucking dudes up. It's just. Yeah, I awesome. think that's where the movie really comes to life because I was watching it and I was engaged and I was interested. But it, when he starts traveling around Japan and going to different schools and basically saying, like, give me your best, like, l- l- I'll fight anybody you have here, it just, it's such a great formula for, for, for yep. movies. And you're getting styles versus styles. And some, you have to beat a few scrubs to get to, like, the, the really good guys in the school. And yep. it's a trope, but it's a trope because it's so much fun to watch. It is. And they, and they shoot it very well. They sh- it's just so shot so well. And, like, the fight, the fight, um, choreographer for this film, Du Hong Jung, is the is the um, was the martial art director on City of Violence. So if people haven't seen City of Violence, it's another Korean movie. See that one too. That's essentially like if you took the Warriors and made them all gangs of martial artists and oh, stuff. Oh, cool! It, I it, love it, the Warriors. I've seen it a billion so times. It's so good. It's so good. So see City of Violence too. A lot of the same people. Involved, and then he was also the second unit director on Mongol, so that was uh, a yeah, South Korea over the last twenty years has had such a filmmaking renaissance, and I guess I first became aware of that. Like really interesting things were happening when I saw Old Boy at the Sundance oh Film Festival, God, like yeah. in 04 or 05. And yeah. speaking of martial arts, has that great hallway fight with incredible choreography there as well. But it seems like ever since people have been catching up. And obviously, this past year at the Oscars, where you saw Parasite just mopping the floor yep. the, the competition. But yeah, South Korea is really. It makes some great fighting movies. They, but people they, they think do. of these days, I guess, the general pop thinks of them like for horror like they make some really great like kind of supernatural horror and the great zombie films and things like that so fighter in the wind very good like definitely check it out one and one of the things they do really well in there especially in the finale is and this is one of my pet peeves is when people don't use slow-mo slow-mo properly you know like a lot of times like just as a general rule like slow-mo and ramped up uh, film, you have to use it so strategically. And so one of the worst things you can do, in my opinion, is actually show the hit in slow-mo. Like it really, especially when people are not actually being hit. So like if you're going to do a slow-mo in a, let's just say a country where they don't mind, they beat the shit out of each other. You know, like if you're really getting punched in the face, that might work well in slow-mo. But if you're not, if it's stacked and you're not really making contact and the selling of that hit really depends on yours and my ability to read each other and for me to react at the right time when you throw the punch and all this kind of stuff like it usually doesn't translate well into yeah, slow motion. It was Jackass 3 or 2 where they had a, a slow motion thing like super slow motion but they're doing things like shooting each other with cannonballs but they obviously were relishing the moment of impact and really Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Embra- but they're it. really getting hit with it though. Yeah. That's the thing. See, slow mo works if you're actually getting hit. Yeah. So there's some slow mo in this movie where you they were clearly getting hit, but what I really loved was how they used the slow mo just after the hit to show the reaction in slow-mo or prior to the hit, the lead up to the hit in slow-mo and then wham fast at the point of hit. You know what I mean? Like it's, they just do a really great job of ramping up, slowing down, ramping up natural speed, ramping up, you know, like throughout 
Yeah, you the need the, the crescendos and decrescendos. Yeah. But there's a great little bit of choreography. Like right as he's about to have his big face off at the end with his nemesis from the entire movie, he's yeah. working his way through his students and he's going through like this tall grass, like yeah. taking down one student. It was like boom, boom, boom. But he takes out like seven or eight guys off. Or one, and I was like, whoa, that was like seven or eight seconds of like pure bliss, but it was just exquisitely choreographed. Yeah, yeah the, the, the setting with the tall grass there was great. And then they had that, well, I guess back then it was a crane shot. I was going to say a drone shot, but then they had the, had the overshot of them in the, the overhead shot in the grass. It was like really cool. So what would happen if Steve was uh, put in the position of this hero at the end and you had to actually fight a bull? Would, would the oh, technique... I, would, I would run and hide in, in the tall grass. <laughs> the, the, the karate chop to the skull on the, on the bull, yeah. is that not, a, not a, an effective technique? Oh, my God. I remember growing up reading all the karate magazines and about Masayama when he was still alive even and they would talk about this of him killing the bull and stuff and i i always thought it was just complete horseshit you know but well there's a lot of bullshittery in the world of martial arts or at least there used to be and i feel probably less now because of the the internet but um as a kid the the taller the tail the more inclined i was yeah. to uh, to believe it so well isn't there that guy that was just recently in like california somebody just recently within the within the last 6 months was attacked by a a mountain lion and actually choked got his back and choked it out. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> that, like, that's that actually guy, real. <laughs> that guy has to start a martial arts style. Like he has to start it. Yeah. He I remember is, hearing about like that the, on the Joe Rogan experience. We were talking about that. And cause Joe's terrified of feral cats from like, whether they're 50 pounds or 200 pounds, they're all scary. And somebody, they're telling that story about how somebody managed to choke out a mountain lion. So I was just, I was in awe, but one other Korean uh, martial arts. And I wanted to mention that I only saw earlier this year, uh, the Witch Part 1, The Subversion, it's a mix of horror and superhero movies and martial arts where you essentially have enhanced teenagers fighting, but because they're enhanced, it's not like Marvel where you, like, you punch somebody and they just go through a wall and they get back up. It shows what would really happen. If somebody's actually super strong, when they hit somebody, you know, bones and tissue are just going to get torn apart. And so it really yeah. gets into the details of what would it be like if people were a little faster or a little stronger than human. And I was enthralled. So, yeah, yet another terrific South Korean action movie. Fenroy, give me some ice. And call that Puerto Rican kid, the one that fights out of the bottoms. If he's here in 20 minutes, he gets 200 bucks. You want to fight him? Do me a favor, guy. Go back to your bag. We don't need anybody else getting hurt. Take a walk. Let's go. Watch his neck. Yo, Rock. What'd you do? Did you leave Mick and Polly at home today? <laughs> his phone's disconnected. Go through the list. Find me somebody. Get me Joe Bones. All I'm saying is that if you need somebody to help you, I'm happy to keep your boy warm for you. Hey, this guy signed a waiver? All good. What's your name? Tommy. You get tuned up in here, it's on you, Tommy. Sure, no problem, no problem. Come on in. Let's go. All right, let's go. Oh, hey, watch that team. Oh, you gonna be a hero? All right. Oh, come on, check that kick. 
easy. move on to a 2011 film which tried to, I mean MMA was already going mainstream but it definitely tried sure. to play a role and help and carry the ball but we have Gavin O'Connor's 2011 film Warrior starring Joel Edgerton and uh, I mean he's got Tom Hardy Tom Hardy and Nick Nolte and Frank Grillo and a bunch of yeah. people like Brian Callen and also tons of MMA practitioners from Nate Marquardt to Anthony Rumble Johnson and Rashad Evans and Stefan Bonner and uh, oh my gosh what's his name uh, Kurt Angle yeah absolutely Angle. not an MMA fighter but a pro wrestler and it's funny yeah. you, we mentioned Luke Thomas earlier in their his most recent podcast with Brian Campbell at the end of the episode they had a big debate about the strengths and weaknesses of the film so let's get the the Steve really? Kepler okay. take on uh, Warrior where do you stand on this film because I feel like the MMA community or the MMA fan community is divided on what they like and don't like about the movie interesting well I mean, I was at the I was at a press screening for it before it was released, and it was um, it was at Times Square at one of the Regal cinema, Cinemas, which is now going to be gone, right? Sadly, but um, it was what about forty five minutes into the film before you see the first fight. Which so is I, a killer fight with Tom Hardy, which is that's one of the best fights. The scenes best in the movie. fight in the movie, yeah. in my opinion. Like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I love that fight. I mean, so we're all in there it's a theater full of vips and press people it's the first time people are seeing the film fight coordinator and second unit director is jj perry for those who don't know and he's also an 87 11 guy and a stunts unlimited guy and he's behind um john wick 2 he did most of the choreography and he was the supervising stunt coordinator on uh, john wick 2 and he was super cool to me on that on that show on that movie but um yeah, so we're all sitting in this theater, and you know the movie's going on, and finally we're finally in the gym. And that scene where Tom Hardy steps up to and volunteers to fight Mad Dog, right? Because Mad Dog just destroyed his sparring partner, and they're like, "Hey, get us somebody else." And Hardy's like, oh, "I'll fight your boy." Yeah, I'll keep on, I'll know? keep him warm until you find somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And they're they're teasing him, you know. They calling him. They like, hey, you can't because he's got a bit of an accent or whatever, right? They say something like, uh, "Where's Mickey?" You know, like, "Where's Mickey?" Did you can't you came without Mickey today? And so finally, he's like, "All right, whatever." And then he walks away, and then they end up inviting him in to fight, and he completely destroys Mad Dog. And this is like, Tom Hardy a year before he played Bane. He is jacked. I mean, he's got yes. traps on his back that come like four inches off of his body. I mean, he is so shredded and so big. And so, I mean, it's like between Bronson and this and Dark Knight Rises, Tom Hardy wasn't fucking around with his body at that point. No. He was a, no, a specimen. It, but I remember, and this is this kind of what I loved about this fight. It was really fast. 
It was it was not a big long protracted fight. It was really fast and brutal and the whole audience applauded. It was like a standing ovation after that that. We all saw that and we're like, holy shit, this is like really exactly what we were talking about before. It was real. It felt like an MMA fight, even though it might have been slightly more fantastic fantastic than reality but literally it could a fight could happen that way there was nothing in there that was super fancy it was just round kicks to the legs punches to the face ending with a suplex right and and, and he throws a few knees from with with those guys heading the plum as well yeah which are very devastating but the way it was shot and the way the energy in the room and the way they you know, showed everybody's jaws dropping, like, oh my god, this nobody is beating up the champion. And somebody catching on their phone in the back and of course gonna post yeah. it online. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a great fight that left everybody in the audience kind of like speechless. We cause you know, I mean, before that there was no real MMA fight movie, really. Not that it's any good. Uh, I guess MMA has not necessarily been captured well enough yet where I'm willing to watch a movie instead of a great fight card. However, when I walked out of Warrior in 2011, I was thrilled. I remember texting my my sister and my brother because my sister loves MMA. I was like, I just saw the Rocky of MMA. And I was, well, you know, I was being hyperbolic because I was just so excited. Seeing yeah. it again yesterday, I recognize now it is too long. I think it's like two hours and 19 minutes. And it's like, woo. That's a that's a, yeah. that's a that's a long movie, and there's a lot of really downbeat kind of dour scenes. But but there's so much fabulous acting going on. I mean, Nick Nolte yeah. is just oh, as the yeah, the so savage dad. as that as yeah. the alcoholic father, and Tom Hardy's so incredible. I mean, all the actors really bring their A game. I think if there's a flaw in it, is that the script perhaps is a little predictable in terms of how it ends but i think it just yeah it drags yeah. on just a tad too long and i think if they'd made it like an hour and 40 it could have been a monster hit i remember i remember kind of by the end just thinking like okay it's the brother versus brother thing let's let's get on with this you know what i mean it was like that was the only drawback but in terms of the fight choreography and stuff it was great you know it, it was, was also so a weird thing where Fight fans, when they're watching a movie like Rocky, don't complain that you're not seeing realistic boxing. And there's nothing realistic about the boxing in Rocky. It's fun. It's a blast. I, I love Rocky. I've seen it a million times. Yeah. But I don't watch Rocky for technical accuracy. If I want technical accuracy, nope. I'll watch like Hagler versus Leonard or something like that. But yeah, right. At the end of this movie, I guess what I will concede is that it's annoying that Tom Hardy's character basically has a dislocated shoulder for two rounds and they're not doing anything to stop it. But I'm being hypocritical because when I watch Rocky... They have eye injuries that look like something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but nobody's stopping the fight for those. And obviously, in real life, if you had those horrific eye injuries, they would stop the yeah, fight. Yeah, of course, they so would I, totally. I have a bit stop. of a double standard where I'm I'm applying one standard to Warrior that I wouldn't necessarily apply to the boxing movies that I loved as a kid. But part of that could be because the fights in Warrior were, were more realistic. So maybe there was an expectation is that they would treat they would treat the scenario more realistically. You know what I mean? Yeah. But where in Rocky, like nobody, like you said, like. That's not how people box, you know, like haymakers for, for 15 rounds. Which you know, it's like tons of fun when you're eight watching Rocky three for the first time. Like, oh my God, this is the best yeah, thing totally. ever. <laughs> but I think if you did a boxing movie, like if they, if they, like it, you can't do it that blatantly anymore, even with boxing. Like if you look at the Creed movies, the yep. boxing is a bit more realistic. You yep. know, it's not like the, 
it's not like the early Rocky movies. Now, if you watch Kickboxer Retaliation, they you people will cut you some slack, and you can get as weird as you like. But if you're watching like a mainstream movie, they do expect a certain level of gritty authenticity. But I guess one thing, the least gritty thing or least authentic thing about this is the idea that Joel Edgerton could be in the the same octagon as Anthony Rumble Johnson. And for people who are fight <laughs> f- fight fans, he's a terrifying human being and when he reached his peak yeah. as a light heavyweight he had dynamite in both hands where there was not a person on the planet that wanted to fight him even john jones was like Ugh, i don't know this <laughs> kind, yeah, of, kind, yeah. of, kind of terrifying but here you have anthony rumble johnson fighting joel edgerton but you know i'm, I'm glad that anthony rumble johnson got a paycheck because it means he when he yeah I, I, I'm, sure. I'm thrilled to see any of these guys getting a paycheck popping in and getting some movie work and and like you said before, not a lot of real fighters. I mean, this is a credit to the filmmakers and and JJ and whoever on his team was helping train these guys, because that transition is not easy to be a film fighter. And so the fact that you had, like even like Eric Apple, who was in that opening scene with Mad Dog, he played Mad Dog, right? And um, you know, he was a, he's a pro MMA fighter. Like the fact that these guys could actually do screen fighting and sell it means that there is a great team uh, helping them get to that. Well, I know you've got some experience doing scissor takedowns. What do you think of Joel Edgerton's scissor takedown of Anthony Rumble Johnson? (sighs) I'd have to go back and watch it again, but I almost always like complain about stuff like that. Like, um, but it, it doesn't stick in my mind about something bad. I was probably excited. I mean, it wasn't like a John Wick level scissor takedown for sure, but you know, it's all good. And as somebody who's spent a lot of time in Russia and has uh, been around a lot of Russian fighters, what do you think of Koba in this flick? I that one of my least favorite things was like I know they were trying to play off of like um, Fedor. Yeah, you know, it, I don't think they really got it. I don't think they got it. You know, yeah, I mean, Fedor I, at this point was probably the most dominant heavyweight fighter that the world of mixed martial arts had ever seen. And I mean, still one of the most dominant heavyweights that the, that the, the sport has ever seen, but he was yeah. r- way bigger and way more popular in 2011 than he is now. But um, yeah, Fedor was pure dynamite for a good long while. And I, was, I always felt like he was a pretty small heavyweight. He probably could have fought at like middleweight if he had lost the belly. He could have been light heavyweight for sure. Yeah. You know, but I mean, but regarding like, this is just a personal pet peeve and it's not anything that viewers would, would even know. But like, I like to see differences in, in style, you know? So I would have liked to have seen an actually, actually a bit more of a Russian style of fighting from that character, not just like, you know, sort of, uh, the American MMA wrestler, striker, boxer kind of jujitsu, you know, like what the formula, you know? So, but most people don't look for that kind of stuff. That's just me. You know, it's like, like when you were asking me before what I thought about the John Wick movies, like I have the, I have a criticism about Parabellum that most people, it's, it's really just for me because I'm always dissecting like how they do things, you know? And one of my pet peeves about that, the choreography in that movie, and it was all awesome. I don't think, I'm not saying it was a bad Parabellum must be the third one, correct? Yeah, the third one, right? And, um, like Halle Berry's character. So they introduced the dogs, which was amazing, I right? The so dogs, the dog, yeah. the dogs, the fighting scene, it, the whole scene was amazing. But just from a nerd, fight nerd point of view, it really annoyed me that she and John Wick had exactly the same fighting style. Absolutely. They should play like, to different like, strengths depending upon yeah. their physique or background, whatever the case may be. But it's just I mean, more she's fun. like this African raised assassin and he's this 
you know, Russian, raised, Russian, Soviet raised assassin, whatever. He's got that style, which was developed to emulate Sambo, right? That's the whole point. They reveal in Wick 3 that he was a Sambo guy. She was not, you know, but yet she was a product of the 8711 way that they train actors. So she was doing a lot of the same transitions, a lot of the same arm drags, a lot of the same everything that Wick does, you know. So most 99.9% .9 of the people wouldn't care or didn't notice that. But I was looking at it saying it's exactly what Keanu was doing. And I would have loved to have seen a more like, yeah, like when you play you know, Street some... Fighter 2, people yeah. enjoy the fact that every character is different. When you watch a movie like Bloodsport, they appreciate the fact that every character is different. And as I'm right there with you, a little variety goes a long way. And I'm not saying it has to be like the first couple of years of the UFC where you would have like a Muay Thai guy versus like a sumo guy or, or whatever. But it is fun just to, just to, for the sake of just creativity, yeah. fleshing out your characters in different ways. Yeah. So anyway, so along those lines, that's how I felt about Warrior. Like he didn't really seem like a Russian fighter to me. And most people, you know, most people watching it wouldn't care about that. But that's just something I care about, you know. Yeah, like when I saw it, it still feels to me like when you watch it that it's like, I always feel like the MMA movies are like 10 years behind MMA itself. They always feel like they're trying to recapture like the tournament style of the 90s or the early 2000s. And yeah. I would have enjoyed it more if they just really made a modern MMA movie set in 2011. And so it's why, it's why UFC has a very consistent product and it slowly mm -hmm. evolves. But if they were going to make a movie like Warrior Today, I hope they would take into account the sport now. Like, don't try to make an homage to the tournament days of the two, of like the '90s. Make it feel modern. Otherwise, MMA fans are just going to watch a UFC card instead of the movie. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, 2011. Well, yeah, I mean, it was definitely modern MMA, but we were not completely. There were a lot of states where it was still banned in 2011. New York being yeah. one of them. I was there know, for the first so. New York card when they came back for uh, when um, yeah. Connor fought uh, Eddie Alvarez, and it, but it blew my mind that it took until 2016 to get it back in New York. It was totally absurd. Yeah, the very first MMA fight ever at Madison Square Garden was an amateur MMA show, and my the very first fight, my student Tommy Doyle won with a rear naked choke. So nice. He go Tommy. He has. No matter what he ever does uh, in the rest of his martial arts career, he'll always be the very first MMA win at Madison Square Garden. Uh, that, that is a very cool feather in his cap. Well, let's shift gears into the very last uh, production that you chose, and it's an unusual choice, but it totally works. The Leftovers, which is a show that I absolutely love. We did a, an episode years ago with Mikhail and Leanne where we tackled the – I think we did a, a season three finale review, but – dynamite show that uh, flew mm -hmm. under the radar big time in HBO. It should have been a much bigger hit and the, the season three kind of got truncated or reduced in scale, but I thought season two was the, the peak of that show. And so you picked episode eight, season two, the international assassin episode. So set up, uh, set up what the uh, scene is. So the scene is where, uh, Justin Thoreau's character goes to the other side, right? He goes into the well, uh, comes out the other side. He's in the bathtub of a, of a, uh, of a hotel, which is like this, what is it? It's like this purgatory kind of middle ground between worlds, right? And um, he's completely nude. He wakes up in this hotel and he opens the closet. And there's three outfits there, right? There's a cop outfit, a tuxedo, and like a, a construction worker outfit or something like three outfits. So he just picks the tuxedo, which I guess, I guess you lead to believe like you're going to be whichever outfit you pick. Yep. So he picks this tuxedo which turns out to be like the Bond type of thing, right? 
And um, he hears somebody at the door uh, of his hotel and he opens it and it's the bellhop with flowers, uh, the flower delivery, right? And that is played, the bellhop is played by a veteran uh, stunt coordinator named Theo Kipri, right? So uh, he comes in. And by the way, to make sure I got all my facts right for this episode, I contacted Dan Mast, who is down in Atlanta, and he's Justin, he's Thoreau's stunt double gotcha. on that episode. So, on that series. And Thoreau's pretty and, uh, shredded in his own right. I mean, he's got abs for days. He makes Brad Pitt's abs in Fight Club seem kind of pitiful by comparison. But I wanted to find out, like, who who did the majority of this fight or how this went down, if there was any anecdotes he want, he felt I could share. But he he said he didn't even work that episode. That was all Thoreau. That whole fight was just all him. And that he's, like, one of the those actors who really wants to get in there and do it himself. So Thoreau opens the door, the bellhop comes, brings the flowers, and Thoreau's like, oh, hang on, let me go get a tip for you. So he walks back into the hotel room to his wallet, which he didn't even know he had, right? Because this is all just, he just woke up in this place. Yeah, and it's he like, opens a, like the, the Sopranos dream world where it's one of those strange episodes yeah. where you don't quite know where it exists or what what exists. Right, so he opens the wallet and it's only euros. So he, he turns to the guy who had followed him in and Thoreau didn't know that he was following him into the hotel room. So now they're, he turns to the guy to give him euros and to basically apologize and say, hey, I only have euros, I don't have dollars or whatever. And just as he turns, the guy swings a knife at him, like, like comes flying at his face. And then this really brutal, fast fight ensues. And it's in... Anybody who's ever stayed in a hotel room, which is probably most of your listeners, at one point in their life, they know you know there's that area in the hotel room that has like a sink, but the sink is not in the bathroom. It's like outside, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's a mirror there, and it's really tight quarters, you know. And they have the most brutal fight in this little tiny space just on the inside of the hotel room by that whole area. It's like a knife fight in a phone booth. It's very small quarters. Oh my god, and it's fast and brutal, man. It's I was just like I remember after I watched it, I was like, "Holy shit, I love this fight." And it, you know, and it's like um the stunt coordinator is uh Justin Reamer, and so he's he's another like uh veteran guy. And uh he was the second unit director on Watchmen. So oh, gotcha. that yeah, like, I love that show. Yeah. I did yeah. reviews on my channel for every single episode. And uh, I think on Stumptown, too, he did some coordination, uh, second unit direction on Stumptown, the current show, Stumptown. But, uh, and Ozark. He worked on Ozark, too. But he was the, the coordinator on, on this one. And I think he second, maybe he did some second unit directing on other episodes of Leftovers. This fight, man, holy cow, it was just so brutal. And it's, it's literally like the fight that I tell people to watch when we talk about, like, how the fight mirrors the story, you know, and how it doesn't have to be big and flashy and beautiful. And it can be like 10 seconds long and leave a super impact. Absolutely. On you. And I love how the way they're attacking each other, it's not a dance, not meant to be beautiful. When they swing their arms and elbows, it's a lot, mostly the elbows because they're so close together. They're swinging yeah. them like hatchets. Like they're trying to cut right through a tree. And yeah. You can tell they're trying to, they're trying to inflict damage on each other and you feel yeah. it. And when bone collides on bone, it should hurt and it, you should hear it. And it should like, it should just be, you should be aware of the fact that like the, the physics involved and yeah. the fact that it ends with the delivery man's head being smashed into that little countertop of the sink. We all know 
like what that serpent is like. It's just it's so visceral having the head collide with it. You're like, all right, that that skull is now in in a thousand pieces. So it was just yeah. there was no grace. It was sheer brutality. And it's like in the first couple of minutes of the episode, it's like shit. All right, where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's not like obviously the show is not an action show, but that's one, another reason why it was so um, memorable. It's not an action show. Yeah, it's very violent at times. People being set on fire and whatnot, and like you know, obviously, what's it? Five percent? I think five percent of the planet has disappeared with the yeah. uh, after the whatever event transpires at the beginning is, of season yeah. one. It's an interesting, actually. It's I. It's an interesting concept if you think about it now in the yeah. time of COVID. It's like a pre-COVID COVID movie, and yeah. uh, uh, that movie or that show brought Damon Lindelof's reputation back from the grave for me because he had written some movies like Prometheus, where I started getting frustrated with his mystery box style of storytelling. But after I saw the leftovers, and I realized he'd taken this novel and made it into season one, but then with season two, built upon it, mm-hmm. which was all fresh material. And yeah, made season yeah. two even better than the first season. Uh, that's all right. Damon Lindelof, you, you won me back as a fan. So that's when I started following him very closely after that. Oh, good. Well, I'm not a big fan of Prometheus. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where Damon Lindelof like, is a writer. I think yeah. maybe he got too big too quickly and he got sloppy perhaps. But I think now he just pays much closer attention. He does fewer projects. He really seems mm-hmm. to pick them carefully. But I think The Leftovers is Damon Lindelof's masterpiece by far. It's so good. Like people, yeah, it's it's really good. It's it's one of those shows that like people still don't even know it existed. You know, it's yeah. like you're like leftovers. Like oh, where on HBO? Really? Go back and watch. It should have been a massive show, but for whatever reason, maybe it's just too goddamn bleak and depressing. But I loved uh, was it Carrie Coon who played the uh, the love interest, and she she. But I love seeing her in that when she's so good, and then getting to see her play one of Thanos's lieutenants in like Avengers uh, Infinity War. I was like, you can't tell that it's her because she's disguised by all this great CGI, <laughs> but you can yeah. recognize that voice. But yeah, Carrie Coon, she's had a, a great career. But I discovered her through the leftovers, and she was just absolutely fabulous. But as we start drawing to a close. I feel yeah. like this is a common theme where people are constantly talking about how, whether it's like an Oscar or whatever the case might be, that the stunt industry doesn't get the recognition that, say, like great editors get or great DPs or great production designers. And just, I, I guess I just wanted to just hear your thoughts on do stunt performers kind of like the fact that they're kind of off on the side doing their own thing, like their own little world within the, the, the movie industry? Or would they like more recognition when it comes to all the other technical achievements? Or just, do you have any thoughts on what we can do mm. to make people pay more attention to the fact that when it comes to the creative contributions of a show or movie, the stunt coordinators, the stunt performers, I mean, they're, they're a massive part. And so many of them now are going on to become assistant directors or directors themselves, like Sam Hargraves, who just recently right. directed uh, Extraction for Netflix. Yeah, he was actually the assistant uh, coordinator on, on uh, Warrior, too, I gotcha. believe. but. Um, so my thoughts on the award thing, like, I don't think you'll, I don't think you'll find, uh, anybody in the stunt industry who doesn't think we deserve recognition. Like, it's just the level of recognition, you know? So like, for example, like, uh, like the old timers there, obviously like way generations back when we were still like the magicians, you know? And like, so, you know, um, when, uh, you know, uh, you're not supposed to be known and the lead, the audience is supposed to believe that it was like, yeah. so, so Yakima actor, Kanut you know? doing those stunts and stagecoach. They wanted to believe that it was John Wayne. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, or, or, or any, I mean, that's, so that's a culture that this whole industry evolved out of, you know. There still is the residue of that belief that's around, you know what I mean? And I don't entirely disagree with it. I mean, I, I understand it for sure. I mean, but at the same time, I'll hear people say like, oh, well, you know, we don't want to ruin the movie magic by like, you know, revealing that, you know, so-and-so has three different stunt doubles depending on, you know, whatever action the character is going to do. And I, my, my, my reply to that is, okay, so do you think that the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are real? <laughs> you know, exactly. it's like, no, you know that they're CGI and you can suspend your disbelief because it's a good story, right? So I don't think it really, I don't think people would really be distracted by knowing, you know, so-and-so has stunt double. I think, I think the bigger part of the problem regarding um, recognition is that there's so many different um, parties and departments involved into like a great action sequence, you know? So, I mean, you could say the same thing like to uh, regarding uh, effects, the effects people, you know, they get an Oscar or whatever. And, um, so, you know, a lot of the, the special effects are done in tandem with the stunt coordinator, you know, with the stunt department. But it's, it, you can kind of separate it out a little bit, you know, but it's, I think when you have, I, I, I heard an interview with Chad Stahelski and they asked him this question and his answer made a lot of sense. He's like, look, I, I totally think we deserve recognition. And by the way, we are getting it in the public domain. We're getting tons of recognition, you know, like stunt people are more known than ever before. Yeah. I remember right? somebody posted a picture of the stunt team from Kingsman, the secret service from the big church fight scene. Oh my God. That's another great one. Yeah. yeah. And they posted it was just the entire team, including uh, Colin Firth's stunt double who did all those yeah. insane scenes. But the picture took off like a rocket because we're like, oh my god, that scene's fucking bananas! And so, yeah, I, I do think there are people out there who appreciate just how much goes into. I, mean, I think that's one of the best fight scenes of the last decade by far. It's definitely great, you know. I mean, but to your to, to the to the question, it's like Chad's answer was well, and it's it would be the case with that with that scene or any other scene. Like so many people are involved in making that scene what it is. Yeah, it's a small so, army. Yeah, and sometimes you know, let's say you have a movie with a director who knows how to do action and doesn't really have to lean on a second unit director or a stunt coordinator as much, or you have a director who really doesn't know how to do action and you really are leaning on the stunt coordinator or the second unit. Yeah, director. Chad Sahelski now is the fixer. He gets brought in to yeah punch up movies that need better action. So and then it's like and then. So how do you measure that? Like when you give an award, like if you do you give an award to like, let's say, take, say like uh, a Steven Spielberg movie, like he directs like, his own action. You know what I mean? He doesn't really. Or Gareth Evans with Gangs of London. When you watch, sure, sure. he directed episodes one and five, but at the end of the episodes that he did not direct, it says very specifically stunt scenes directed by Gareth Evans. So he's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So. So, like, I think the challenge is, is how do you recognize that process, you know, properly? Like, SAG, Screen Actors Guild, gives, like, um, they don't give, like, the Emmys give Best Stunt Coordinator, you know, uh, that 
the SAG Awards does the best stunt team. Um, they do it more as a team uh, recognition, like the whole, the whole stunt department. And then, uh, you know, obviously the Oscars don't recognize us at all, even though there have been stunt people who have gotten Oscars, but there it's like honorary or lifetime awards, or they got like Oscars for other things. Like how right? Needham, I think, got an honorary award, like in the early 2000s for all of his contributions as yep, a stuntman yep. and then director. Yeah. Jackie Chan got one and uh, uh, brain farting uh, gentleman just died this year. Another veteran. He got an Oscar, but not for stunts, but for technical uh, advances because of his development of the air ramp. Right. So, you know, there, there are definitely some people have gotten Oscars, but there's no Oscar like for the stunt department like there is the makeup department. And FX well, at and, a minimum, because I like mixed martial arts and because I like action movies, I'm going to make a vow moving forward that this podcast at a minimum will do more episodes devoted to choreography, action, et cetera. Whether you're talking about horse stunts, car stunts, gun stunts, fists and feet, whatever. They can, there's a, a wide range of stunts out there, and I feel like there's so many people out there who deserve a hell of a lot more uh, pats on the back than they've been getting because obviously they deliver so much joy and entertainment to people who love film and television. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's our stuff that ends up in the trailers, right? Or yeah. like the lead up to the Oscars, they show all the cool action stuff and everything. But like for me personally, like, so I think we deserve it, but it's not something that I'm that passionate about that I'm going to go out and like march, and, you know, well, I in think front of having podcasts and YouTube channels on the side for the people who are part of that world might just help open people's eyes to just how fascinating mm -hmm. the, the technique involved is is and i feel like the same way you have mma fighters who will have a podcast on the side or a twitch channel when they're playing video games it just invites more people into that world and so yeah who knows maybe if chad sahelski stops being so successful as a filmmaker maybe he'll start a <laughs> podcast on the side talking about well, what's, what's involved you know a lot of people start podcasts and not a lot of people keep podcasts going so credit to you for keeping it up for yeah, i've been doing it six years now episodes. and um i don't do as many episodes as i used to because like in the second or third year, there are some months where I was doing between like 10 and 15 a month and it was breaking me and it was breaking oh, my enthusiasm. Crazy. And I was just, yeah. all I was doing was watching, recording, editing, posting. Well, and it just, it became such a grind. So now I found if I do, well, actually this is my second podcast I'm recording today and I got two I'm recording this week. So this week's a little bit more busy, but it's because I'm recently single. So I got a little more uh, spare, uh, time my, spare time on my hands yes, you are. podcasts and that sort of thing. <laughs> You've got extra energy to use. Uh, absolutely. Like 8711 did start a podcast of their own, but it, I don't, I mean, they did a bunch of episodes and then it was kind of done. I don't know. I don't see people talking about it anymore. I don't even know if they continue to do it. Like they probably did like eight or nine episodes, which are, which are great. You could hear, you know, but I think the problem was it was designed to just introduce you to their people. Yep. So once you run out of your core team. You either have to branch out or your podcast is done. Like, yeah. you know, well, so I did a Hal Needham episode with Moose, which was a ton of fun. That was yep. his first time he came on, and we talked about mostly that pivot from stuntman to director like in the mid 70s but i definitely need to do a yakima canut i mean between stagecoach and like the chariot sequence and ben-hur and all that sort of sort of thing but like those early stunt guys where they were just doing it and capturing Dude. it all in camera were just insane i watched ben-hur over and over when i was a kid i had no idea who he was obviously but until later in my life i i learned who he was and i was like oh my god that's who's behind this amazing like 
I loved. I used to watch just that scene. Yeah. Anytime you, know? you see somebody going underneath a horse and carriage or a chariot, it's probably either yeah. him or his son, because that's what they were really good. What they were really yep. good at. So yeah, I think. Anyway, you know, I hope we get recognition, but it's not the most important thing to me. You know, well, you're welcome back on Wrong Reel anytime you want to talk about your work or other people's work because I find it to be a fascinating subject. And so I think it's also an inexhaustible subject. So our door is open anytime. But as we start to draw things down, where can people find your website for your school? Where can people find you online just to see some of your work? Like yeah. now it's time to plug and promote anything and everything <laughs> related to the great Stephen Kepfer. Um, so, yeah, pretty much everywhere. My my name, my screen name is Sambo Steve. So if you go on to Twitter, Instagram, um, any of the, you know, martial art forums or uh, Reddit or whatever, just, just type in Sambo Steve one word and you'll, you'll find me. And then uh, for our stunt crew on Instagram, it's at Breakfall Stunts. Nice. And then, um, you know, under my own name on Facebook and then, uh, or New York Combat Sambo is the gym. We have our own, you know, our business page on Facebook. You can you can go there too. And uh, nothing to plug, really. I mean, well, actually, a movie that I worked on last year is just out now. It's called Save Yourselves, and um, it, it did. It was in the theaters for. It, it premiered on the on October second in theaters, and then on the sixth in on demand. So you can get it pretty much everywhere on demand, and it's a great sci-fi little sci-fi alien invasion movie nice and um it's really cool it's got sunita mani from glow and also people would probably know her from moose is a little bit obsessed with aliens did you and he have a chance to talk about that together at all or no but these aliens are great it's it's basically the premise of the movie is that uh john reynolds who plays the is the male protagonist and Sunita Mani is they're a, they're a husband and wife couple that they decide they want to get off the grid, get to know each other, spend some time together, turn off their phones, get off the internet, all that. And so a friend of theirs, um, says, Hey, why don't you use my grandfather's cabin up upstate New York and go up there for a week? I just renovated it, whatever. So they go up there and they turn off everything. And then during that week, is when there's an alien invasion. <laughs> so they don't know what's going on. And so the aliens... That's a great, great premise. It's really great. And they're a hipster Brooklyn couple. They're so... They sell it so good. I mean, it's kind of gratuitous to say that I'm in the cast because I'm in this one scene, but it is cool that it's like the first movie I ever got a cast credit in. But nice. it's like, uh, I am desperate, man. You know, so I'm basically like the neighbor, you know, that's being chased by an alien that gets killed by this alien that uh, they don't they're not aware of what's going on. Like all these things are going on around them to kind of indicate that there's a bigger problem. But they're so focused on their dissecting their own relationship and life and all this kind of stuff that they don't see it. Right. And the aliens are literally like tribbles on crack. They're big tribbles. Gotcha. They're not like these creepy crawly kind of. It's really awesome. They're called poops. <laughs> so it's like it's it's just such a cute movie, and it's got ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is cool. Nice. And the the critics really love it. And um, you know, I hope that these guys get to do more films because it was really fun to work with them, and um, the movie's really good. So everybody, go out and uh, 
rent and watch save yourselves very nice well steve i can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about this because i feel like you are you're shining a light on a part of the film industry that so many people enjoy but don't really take a lot of time to learn about so for me it was an incredible educational ride so thanks for coming on and just uh shooting the shit about this fascinating topic Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, man. And maybe we come on again after uh, Bill finishes and you release your, your video. Hobo you. with the high kick. Absolutely. Yes, we'll do a hobo with the high We are ready to release episode. to unleash it upon the unsuspecting uh, populace. And hopefully, if, we get e- if I get either some decent subscribers or some decent traffic, we will definitely be making Hobo Part 2. We've already got hobo an idea. Bro. I've got an idea where I want Hobo to be... Um, Basically, surrounded by like you and like your entire stunt team, and actually lose and lose badly, and like be like thrown into the Hudson River at the end of it, like have end on a big cliffhanger, like what happened to Hobo, and have everybody screaming for him to come back for a third one. But uh, yeah, I keep thinking like what, how, how, because when you mentioned to me some of the rates involved with um, stunt performers and coordinators and whatnot, I realized it's actually very reasonable if you don't have a lot of pyrotechnics and car crashes and guns, like just to get the martial artists in the room. It's actually yeah, well pra- within reach. Practical stunts. Yeah, it's yeah, very, practical it's very practical. Stunts. It's like, oh well, shit, we can have hobo fight ten guys and get torn to pieces by uh, Steve and his buddies. So, uh, yeah, to be to be continued on that front. Definitely, man. Cool. cool. Well, thanks for having me. It was uh, it was fun. Absolutely. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely follow Steve on social media and check out some of his work online and check out some of the movies that we talked about earlier. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate the podcast, review it, etc. Plug, promote, and uh, if you want some more content in the short term, you can find me on YouTube, Geeking with James Hancock. But thanks again for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.